COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic. Our goal is to protect the lives and livelihoods of Australians. We have breaking news on a corona scare. The panic buying, self-isolating on a statewide level. Stop it. It's Friday, April 3rd. Natalie Bongiolo and Ben O'Shea joining you for Coronavirus Watch. And Ben, unfortunately, the numbers of cases went up again today in WA. Yes, 22 new cases in Western Australia today, 10 in the metro region, three in regional WA. Uh, Nine of those were are Tanya passengers, and they're all adults uh, aged between 37 and 81 years old. Uh, So that brings the WA total to 422 confirmed cases. Uh, There are 56 people in hospital, 16 currently in the ICU. 92 people have recovered. That leaves 327 active COVID-19 cases in the state. And today we experienced another death, unfortunately. It was a a member of the Artania crew who passed away uh, at the Joondalup Health Campus. He was a man in his 60s uh, and was one of the 42 passengers and crew who've tested positive to the virus so far. And there are still so many problems with that cruise ship and, of course, you know, knowing what to do with all of those people that are still on board. And we know that today it was a hive of activity down there at the harbour with buses and uh, police cars all just standing by waiting for the next move. Yeah, Mark McGowan uh, would love nothing more than to drive down to Frio and see the uh, silhouette of the Artania sailing off yeah. beyond the horizon. But it doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. The The ship has requested it staying till at least April 15, and the Australian Border Force is not going to uh, force it out to sea. It's an impossible situation. There are humanitarian considerations. Uh, McGowan wants the boat to go back to its home port in Germany, uh, and he believes a lot of the crew would also like to go back to Germany. They certainly don't want to be on a ship where they're in danger of contracting coronavirus, but the, the fact is it's simply not safe for them to sail because the virus could be on any number of surfaces around the ship and it needs a deep clean. And that's what we're currently waiting for at the moment, uh, an analysis of whether or not it is indeed possible to clean the ship and how that might happen. And it's a very delicate situation as well because this is now a border force operation also. So it's not entirely in our Premier's hands. This is a real juggling act that they're dealing with at the moment. So nationally, what are the figures looking like nationally now? 217 new cases today, Nat, which doesn't sound amazing, but it does actually continue uh, the reduction in the growth rate of infections that we've witnessed in Australia over the past week. That brings the national total to 5,350 confirmed cases. Unfortunately, there were four deaths added to the uh, death total uh, in Australia over the last 24 hours, bringing it up to 28 people. Uh, We lost uh, uh, a man in his 80s from Victoria, a 74-year-old woman from Albury in New South Wales, the the German passenger from the Artania cruise ship that we mentioned, and a a Wollongong man who was also a cruise ship passenger has uh, passed away due to COVID-19. Yeah, and internationally, those cases have pushed up now past the 1 million mark. Yeah, we said yesterday that uh, the cases were getting closer to a million. It has now gone well and truly past a million. We're at uh, 1,016,128 confirmed cases, a total death toll as it stands right now at uh, 53,145. Uh, about 200,000 people have recovered from the illness, uh, but the the reality is there could be many, many more times uh, those numbers actually uh, contracting the virus at the moment. 
That's right. And the Chief Medical Officer, Professor Brendan Murphy, gave a press conference today where he talked about that. And he said that, you know, the true number is probably so much greater because other countries aren't detecting their cases in the way in which we are. And he said, really, he is only confident in Australia's figures. And he's not confident with the numbers coming out of anywhere. And and in the US, of course, it is absolutely terrible. And we were just looking at the graph with just so this terrible curve that is just sky high and terrifying for them. Yeah, if you look at the John Hopkins University website, where they've got a fantastic tracker of coronavirus around the world, they've graphed the daily confirmed new cases uh, according to the 10 most affected countries. And if you look at the curves of all of those countries, America is terrible, by far and away the worst. It is going up like Mount Everest, whereas the other affected countries like Italy and even Spain, which has been rising rapidly recently, France, Belgium, Germany and the UK, they look like they're starting to manage that growth rate. It's starting to dip, uh, which is obviously a, a hugely positive sign, a result of the drastic action that they're taking in those countries. In America, that does not look to be the case. The The growth rate just keeps rising and rising exponentially. Yeah, and, and Professor Murphy said, you know, despite the fact that we're doing very well here in Australia, he did warn people that there will be people in the community who have COVID-19 they just don't realise it. So it was still this message, yes, we're doing well, but this is not a time to be complacent. Yeah, absolutely. That I think that is the most important thing to take away from everything that we've seen so far. You could be asymptomatic, but you could still be spreading the virus stick to the rules and uh, help us get through this. Yeah. Back at home, uh, Premier Mark McGowan at his press conference today, he spoke about the border closures, the hard border closures, which we see come into effect Sunday night at 11.59pm. And again, he said that, you know, this was not an easy decision, but he couldn't sit on his hands and just wait this out, that it had to be done quickly. And as a result of that, they haven't been able to do it as carefully as they would have liked. So it's going to be messy. Um, it's going to be stressful for people. It's going to be chaotic. But this was his opportunity and this was an advantage that we had because Western Australia is so isolated. And so he felt he had a responsibility not to um, use that advantage to our advantage here in WA. Yeah, I think it was really great leadership from uh, the Premier today, admitting that it was going to be messy. I think we've seen over the past few weeks... uh, politicians say, this is what we're going to do, this is the rules everybody has to follow, yet it isn't always clear how they're going to be enforced, how we're supposed to stick to them, and it's created a lot of confusion, I think, in the minds of a lot of people, and there hasn't been much acknowledgement of that confusion. I think the Premier today did acknowledge that it's not perfect, everybody's doing their best, uh, and I think that's a really, really timely reminder that everybody's trying to navigate an impossible situation, something that none of us have ever experienced before. And McGowan admitting as much, I think, will go a long way towards earning some some patience and understanding from the public. That's right. And of course, we're still trying to grapple at the moment with the intrastate um, lockdowns. And I think... 3,600 people drove to the borders and 201 of those were refused access. And that comes down to whether you can or can't get through, actually at the end of the day, becomes a police commissioner, has the final final say on that. But there's some very interesting um, issues that these border closures within Western Australia raise. 
Oh, absolutely. Uh, for me, one of the, the most interesting stories to follow in the next few weeks will be what happens with uh, West Coast and Frio footy players, because there are discussions happening in government with the AFL as to whether or not they'll be exempt from WA's hard border closure, because the AFL is hoping to restart its competition in June, which is crazy. I don't think you would find many doctors that aren't on the payroll of the AFL saying that that is uh, uh, realistic, but that's what the AFL wants to do. They can't do that very easily if they don't have Eagles and Dockers players, but a situation in which Eagles and Dockers players were allowed to come and go through our borders, whereas Western Australians who were stuck over on the East who couldn't get back to see family members, to me, that seems untenable. And it's hard to imagine even the most diehard footy lover in WA <laughs> thinking that that was appropriate. I would definitely think that that is wishful thinking. Um, up in the Kimberley, still a lot of concern up there because we have the six workers up there who tested positive. Um, and although in saying that, there was no new cases overnight. That's a massive positive. Yeah. But yeah, there's still a huge reason for concern. Uh, you've got the issues around testing. You've got the remote communities. You don't know what it would take before an outbreak in one of those remote communities would actually become public. There's a lot of fear around what it could do. Uh, so the the government, the state government has sent 30 clinical staff, uh, or they will send 30 clinical staff over the next 24 hours up to the Kimberley to assist. Uh, and again, it's the Aboriginal communities that, that are extremely vulnerable to COVID-19 because of the predominance of uh, existing health conditions. So the government is looking at restricting Kimberley borders even further to stop uh, movement around communities. Uh, they'll be looking at uh, bringing, bringing uh, police and other resources in to bear there so, to actually enforce that and also communicating uh, with the communities about the importance of staying where they are, don't travel around, don't take the chance of spreading something that could decimate the Indigenous community up there. That's right. At the end of the day, this is all about the social distancing and just keeping away from each other. And the Prime Minister today talked about that and said, without that, you know, we could see Australia's numbers double. So let's have a listen to what he said. Patience must become the virtue of Australians over the next six months at the very least. It is something we need to get very familiar with. It's something we've got to encourage each other in. And it also is something the National Cabinet all the states and territories I know are very conscious of uh, to ensure that we can keep these arrangements sustainably in place over the many months ahead. Where we think they can be eased, where we think they can be modified in their enforcement and how that's done, I'm, I know the state and territory premiers and chief ministers are listening very carefully to their communities. I have no doubt uh, the police commissioners in each of the states or those who are responsible for the enforcement are listening carefully and exercising the appropriate discretion. I, I think we have to sort of give each other a bit of a break on, on ensuring how we're adjusting to this new normal. It'll take a little while. But uh, patience must become our virtue in Australia. That will save lives. It will save livelihoods. So the Prime Minister there, I mean, at the end of the day, he's saying that we've made inroads, um, but we still have a long way to go. We're now in the suppression phase. But there is one professor who thinks we may even be taking it too far. 
Yeah, uh, an ANU professor believes in a nutshell that we may have gone uh, too hard too early, which is a class. You don't want to do that if you're running in the Melbourne Cup. You've got to pace <laughs> yourself. And I think there's an issue of pacing ourselves as far as this professor is concerned. He is wondering that based on the evidence that he can see, we're actually doing so well at flattening the curve, we're making it go down. And he's not sure if some of the draconian measures that have been put in place are actually medically necessary. Uh, and he thinks that, uh, you know, being two metres away from everybody else while you're out in the sunshine, there's just no way that you can transmit a virus to somebody else. Uh, and he's wondering why we're not saving some of these really strict measures for later in the year, in the middle of winter, when it's more likely that the peak of infections will happen, just as we see every year with the seasonal flu. It makes a good point. I, I don't think it's particularly helpful at this time no. because there are, there are so many people who are already hurt, hurting uh, through these restrictions, whether it's through not having contact with family members or businesses that have been hit so terribly by the restrictions. So I'm not sure having an academic come out and say, is it necessary, is the most uh, helpful message that we should be spreading at the moment. But certainly the way I would look at it is at the very least, we're getting practice at what a lockdown might look like. So if these measures are relaxed, if the growth rate continues to go down and the government decides to relax some of these measures, eventually they will need to be instituted once more uh, and then we'll at least know what to do. So I don't really see there's any negative side to doing them in such a, a harsh manner initially because if anything we've shown at the start, we weren't really that good at it. Uh, yeah. So we're getting we're getting better and better and better at sticking to these guidelines, at the washing the hands, at not panic buying. We needed this practice uh, because eventually when things get a lot worse, we'll have this up our sleeve to fall back on. One item that's been very interesting today is this whole issue around tenants and landlords and agreements between particularly commercial tenants and landlords and whether they have any protection and how they're going to go about doing that. Yeah, up until now, this has been the, the missing piece of uh, the economy and how the relief packages have been unfolding. Workers have got some assistance through the JobKeeper program. There's been other packages designed to help childcare centres. But a lot of business owners are thinking, well, I still have to pay my landlord and I have no income coming in. Uh, is anybody going to give me any uh, rent relief? And, and so that's what SCOMO has, has talked about today, enforcing a mandatory national code uh, that would guarantee uh, commercial tenants rent reductions. It'd be proportional to how much income they've lost. So if you're still trading as per usual, and it's important to note that there are some businesses who are doing very well at the moment, whether it's the supermarkets or there are some cafes that are able to do takeaway very effectively, there are certainly businesses that are trading as usual. They're not going to qualify for a rent discount. Clearly, that wouldn't make any sense and it wouldn't be fair. But there are lots of businesses who've suffered a huge drop in income. This is going to be about protecting them, reducing their rent proportionally uh, to match how much revenue they've lost. Uh, and it's about keeping these businesses alive. So when we get past this, they can open back up again. We might be looking at uh, a sort of a compulsory extension of leases so landlords get looked after as well so if they get a bit of a discount now their lease will be extended by a certain amount of time so then the landlord can make up some of that lost revenue there are lots of mechanisms that will be discussed and put in place again this is probably like a lot of other things we've seen rolled out it's going to be a little bit messy to use mark mcgowan's words today yeah. but i'm sure there are a lot of businesses out there that are happy to see that it's on the radar because yeah. they were worrying how they're going to make these payments and now 
uh, at least it's acknowledged that it is a situation that needs to be addressed. How it will be addressed remains to be seen, but it's a positive step. Yeah, and I think where this is really going to come to a crunch is in the residential area as well, because obviously we're going to have residential tenants who are losing their jobs and unable to pay their mortgages, and we know um, that there is... um, a moratorium on evictions, so people will not be kicked out of their rental properties. However, on the flip side of that, you've got the landlords who are predominantly probably mum and dad investors uh, who are also losing their jobs and have a mortgage Mm. to pay. So the big question here is who's going to step up and it's really going to come down to the banks, I think, as to who is going to step up and step in where there is this period where nobody can pay the rent and therefore nobody can pay the mortgage. Yeah, there's no doubt the banks uh, are going to have to step up. I don't think you're going to get much sympathy from the general public if the banks don't. We're talking about uh, financial institutions, the big ones anyway, that post multiple billion dollar profits each year. Uh, so they're going to have to, they're going to be forced to eat into those profits a little bit. We're already seeing some of the big banks step up and offering uh, to to sort of shutter mortgage repayments for six months or to offer some kind of relief for a, a, for a short period of time. There's going to have to be much more of that. And uh, hopefully they do it out of the goodness of their own hearts <laughs> yeah. uh, because it certainly would be good PR uh, and I'm, everybody would love to read about or watch stories about banks that have, have made uh, gestures like this. If the government had to step in, you know, that might be inevitable as well. Yeah. Moving to the UK where they are having terrible economic and health problems as a result of COVID, um, but this one fellow who is a hostage negotiator, and he has extraordinarily some tips for self-isolation. In the first week of captivity, I had my own clothes. And uh, at night, I managed to get my trousers off, even though I was chained up, and I put them under the mattress uh, to press them. Now, that may sound really stupid. It's something I learned in the army. I was at the end of national service. And it's something I learned that... In all these situations, keep your own dignity, keep yourself smart. And the same applies today, in a sense, when those people are at home in in sort of lockdown. You know, don't just get up and hang around all day in a dressing gown or pyjamas. Take a pride in your appearance. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so that was Terry White, who himself was a former hostage. Uh, Back when he was uh, an envoy of the Archbishop of Canterbury, he was taken hostage in Lebanon and held in solitary confinement for almost five years. You know, he was kept in a small room in the dark. He had no books. He had no Netflix. So if he could survive that and do it with freshly pressed pants, I think that's an inspiration for us all as we're sitting on our couch dusting the Doritos crumbs off our PJs at uh, two o'clock in the afternoon. (laughs) Absolutely. And I tell you, from one tough old bugger to another, there's a bloke in Oregon who's 104. And and am I reading this right, that he's a survivor of COVID-19? Yeah, Bill Lapshee's in Oregon. He could be the oldest survivor of COVID-19. We know it has placed a really heavy toll on a lot of elderly people around the world. Uh, He survived the disease. He turned 104 yesterday, can you believe it? Uh, He's he's so old. Sorry, Bill, I don't mean to say that. He's so old (laughs) that he also survived the 1918 Spanish flu epidemic. Wow. 
there can't be too many people around who survived both. So that's that's a real positive story. There's another uh, high-profile uh, COVID-19 case in America, though, that uh, I know everybody out there who's watching the Netflix series Tiger King at the moment will be very interested in. Uh, I, I'm sad to reveal that Joe Exotic, the star of that uh, factual documentary series, has contracted COVID-19. I won't tell you where, because those who haven't finished the show, uh, it'll be a bit of a spoiler <laughs> if you know where he's ended it up but it's it's obviously a very serious condition he'll get treatment for it uh, wherever he is which i won't reveal is a sort of place where he has uh, access to treatment so that's positive for him um but yeah things are a little bit different in america at the moment There's, even the cia are involved right now uh, so i don't know if you've heard this nat but they're using their assets in in china so they're, they're spying basically this <laughs> the cia is spying on china to try and get an accurate uh death toll uh, of COVID-19 cases because they believe that the Chinese government has fibbed on the official toll, which I don't think anybody really doubts that. It's, But to what degree they've fibbed, I think, is the issue because America is looking at what happened in China as uh, an example of how they can manage the virus in America, what they might be looking at. But if they if they don't have accurate figures from one of the, the biggest countries in the world, then it's very hard for them to extrapolate out mm. what is happening in America. So they've put the spies, the spooks, on the job. Well, I just wonder if they would be better turning inward and worrying more <laughs> about what is going on in America right now, looking at that at that curve. Yeah, I think I think the CIA maybe need to uh, start investigating what's happening in the White House. Correct, correct. And Peru, this is really interesting. They are taking this social isolation and social distancing to another level and, and they're doing it by separating the genders. And I couldn't understand why, but then there's actually a very good reason for this. Yeah, so these new measures will begin in Peru today. Uh, and what they're going to do is on certain days of the week, men will be allowed outside the house. And then on the other days, women will be allowed outside the house, which seems strange, but it actually is a very easy way for the authorities to work out who is actually allowed out on the street at any one time. So it reduces it reduces the number of people out and about by roughly 50%. And it's pretty easy to spot anybody who's breaking the rules. And so it makes it much easier for the officials to restrict movement and actually enforce some of their uh, quarantine guidelines. Uh, they're not the first country to do it. Uh, a couple of other South American countries have done it as well. And I wonder if we could ever see it here in Australia. Yeah, I mean, it is bizarre to think, but what a way that it would make it so much easier for police to police the situation. Yeah, totally. Uh, and you could just on the days, like on the on the Sundays when the blokes are allowed to go out, Bunnings would be very busy. So <laughs> you'd, have to, you'd have to be aware of that. Maybe some special uh, social distancing rules at Bunnings. But other than that, I think, uh, that, you know, there's the merit to a measure like that. That's right. Okay, well, that, that could be some very interesting times down the track if that were to eventuate. So back in Perth, um, Mark McGowan, at his press conference, he talked about the, the very dire situation that we're in. However, some very, very good news as Easter approaches. He has given ex an exemption and the kids out there will be very, very happy to hear this. Yeah, it was in response to a letter that he received from uh, a little girl in Thornley, I believe. And she was worried that because of the hard border closures, the Easter Bunny wouldn't be allowed back in Western Australia. But he's assured all of the kids in Western Australia that he's signed a special exemption to allow the Easter Bunny in next weekend. My little boy will be very, very happy to hear that. However, maybe not a good idea 
to go for a jog and head out for a kebab over the Easter weekend. <laughs> yeah, at the Premier's press conference today, someone asked him about the case in New South Wales of a of a person being arrested or being stopped by police for going for a jog and then stopping for a kebab. And it was probably one of the more unusual questions the yeah. Premier has had for a while, and he struggled to keep a straight face. Have a listen. Yes, I think in New South Wales was going for a run, stopped to have a kebab, and then was handed a fine. So will WA be handing out some fines in that sense? I find it hard to believe someone was going for a run and then stopped to have a kebab. But um, in, any, in any event, they do things differently in New South Wales. Um, look, um, there's, nothing wrong with, there's, not, there's nothing wrong with going for a run. There's nothing wrong with going for a run and having a kebab. <laughs> I don't think there's anything wrong. We're not, we're not making it unlawful to go for a run and eat a kebab. Uh, it's whether, you, whether you're not a, you're in a group. That is the issue. Well, that's the Premier <laughs> having a true fit of the giggles. And you know when you just start laughing about something and you cannot stop. <laughs> we, all, we all need a bit of that right now, I think. And, and even the Premier is not immune. That's right. On the West Live today, Jenna Clark spoke to a laughter practitioner who said you need to have a laugh every day, even if you have to force it. So do a vow. Oh, when you get to the top of it, laugh out loud. (laughs) (laughs) Or just listen to that clip of the premiere. It'll make me laugh every time. (laughs) That's right. Well, everyone, have a great weekend. Stay safe. Keep smiling. Keep laughing. We'll be back with you Monday for Coronavirus Watch.